Greetings audience, my name is Tim Whiffen and welcome to a very special episode of Blind Insights. On the podcast, we generally like to tell you just how bad things can get, and then give you hope by explaining what can be done about them. Today, we'll be discussing the very worst of what humanity is capable of, and in particular, discussing one man's determination and will which saw him through the hardest of times and on to live a very happy life. Eddie Jaku is a German Jew who has lived a glorious 100 years and is still going strong. Having been born in 1920 Germany meant that by the time Eddie was 18, his homeland was a very different country. On November 10th, 1938, Eddie Jaku was arrested, beaten and taken to a concentration camp, eventually ending up being taken to Auschwitz, the deadliest camp of the Holocaust. By virtue of some miracles, Eddie managed to survive and escape before getting married and moving to Australia, where he has lived out many prosperous years with his family. Eddie has written a memoir titled The Happiest Man on Earth, and with a book title like that, David and I knew we had to talk to him. Given the restrictions of interstate travel, we were able to connect by phone with Eddie in Sydney, where he spends his time with his family, his friends, and with the people at the Sydney Jewish Museum. After our interview with Eddie, we spoke to Aviva from the Sydney Jewish Museum. We hope this episode gives significant insight into the horrors of Auschwitz, as well as the future of the Sydney Jewish Museum passing on stories like Eddie's, which is incredibly important in the prevention of something like the Holocaust ever happening again. Good afternoon listeners and welcome to today's episode of Blind Insights. Today we will be speaking with Eddie Jaku, who survived the Holocaust and describes himself as the happiest man on earth. Today in the studio I'm joined by Tim Whiffen. Hello Tim. Thank you for having me David. And we're joined by Jessica Freund who is back from Sydney out of quarantine and now has a part-time job. <laughs> Hi. And with, and with Luke, who has already recorded an episode about Catch-22 today. It's good to be back. And Eddie, welcome to Blind Insights. Thank you for your time. Thank you. Eddie, don't really know where to start because as we've been doing our research, so much of your experience between 1938 and 1945 is just so outside of any of our comprehension. And I thought the best place to start might be when you were away at boarding school because what kept popping through my head was did the experience of being away from your family for those five years really start to teach you the level of resourcefulness you needed to survive what was going to come next? Yes, it was probably the worst time of my life because when you are 13 and a half, you need your mum more than ever. Mm. And unfortunately, I had to decide with my dad that if I want to become a precision engineer as I am, I had to do this on my own and uh, take the risk. He had got me the papers of a man who probably has disappeared or left Germany. He was existing before I took his identity on, but it was very, very hard because I would have to be very careful that nobody, if I in my sleep, I would call my mom or my dad or my or any other relative. I would uh, tell them that I'm not Walter Schleich. 
So this was probably the hardest, how to make sure that you don't. So what I did, I say in my book, that I worked at that time for Siemens, and I had the ability to make myself a big lamp. When we went to bed, we were going to bed quarter past nine, and I, the, the light goes out, but I cover my head with my sheet, switch on my lamp, and used to study two hours, three hours. Mathematics is my strongest subject, and science and physics. And so like this, I fell sometimes asleep with the light on. And all I could hear these people saying, you see, this Walter Schleif is frightened of the dark. But for me, that didn't mean nothing. <laughs> At least I was so tired that I wouldn't call anyone. <laughs> I wasn't able to dream. When you dream, you're not fully asleep. And I have to make sure that I'm so tired that I'm fast asleep for the few hours because we get up very early. I started already to work in the factory at seven o'clock in the morning. So that was very hard time. And for me, that was very hard to get used to it. I said, why have I got to, do, to go through this? Well, later on in life, I appreciated that my father insisted, if you want to become what we like you to become, it won't be easy in a circumstances like circumstances that we were living in. And it all worked out beautiful. I remember everything now, what my father used to tell me on my phone, on the phone when I rang. So I became a precision engineer. The other hard time of me when you ask is when I graduated. Graduation in Germany is a very colorful event. And I belonged they accepted me in one of the finest union. Union in Germany is not like union here. Union in Germany is a honor to belong. You can't belong if you don't graduate properly in the top 10. So I graduated in the top 10 and I was accepted. And we are in a special robe, in a blue robe with white lace. And the master is in the same uniform than you. And when he said, today the apprentice, uh, Walter Schleif, is accepted in one of the finest and oldest union in German and accepted. I started crying and he couldn't understand because I couldn't tell him I'm not Walter Schleif. I'm Hedy Jacob and I have parents, beautiful parents young parents who were supposed to be next to me, but it was not to be. Mm. So that was a very disappointing moment in my life. Yeah, when you but bomb- it paid off, it paid off. <laughs> yeah. On my life, and I had 75 years after the war, <laughs> and that is my bonus. that suffered for a few years and have so many years, good life, beautiful wife, wonderful children, and a new family which I created. I'm so proud of it. I imagine part of what made that such a difficult experience, Eddie, was the fact that you know your bar mitzvah should have been such a massive, important thing in your life, and yet because of when that happened, that all had to be so much quieter. So in a sense, that didn't get to be the way you or your family would have wanted it. You, know, you couldn't be Jewish in the way you and your family wanted. And then in a sense, the day you graduate and join the union, 
you couldn't do that as you either. So since there's two incredible dates that should have marked becoming a young man and becoming a professional, in a sense yes. they've both been stolen by Hitler. Sure. And you see, I have a job then. I was working for Carl Zeiss. They make Leicas and they make contacts and they make microscopes and things like that. I was more in the mechanical and optical field. And if I wouldn't go home, to see my parents on the 9th of November, if I wouldn't do that trip, I wouldn't have landed up in Buchenwald and Auschwitz, probably, I don't know. I would have continued living on the Walter's life, employed, and I was in any case in a boarding house. I could live there forever, I mean, for how long I wanted. So you don't know what you do. Sometimes you do things, you want to do the right thing, I wanted to be with my parents on their 20th wedding anniversary, which would be on the 10th of November 1938, when not to be. They were in hiding, and I wouldn't know that they left their house. Otherwise, I wouldn't come. I wanted to surprise them. That's why I didn't tell them in the last phone call that we had together that I'm coming home. So if I wouldn't have done that, I would have saved myself a lot of trouble. Yeah, but a point that comes through very strongly in the book is that you always stayed true to your moral compass. So if you take the example when you were working in the coal mine and the other crew stole your cars of coal, so if you hadn't gone home to see your mum and dad, at some point your moral compass from everything you describe in the book, and you keep making the point in the book, you have to stay true to yourself. In the coal mine, I worked in the Auschwitz. That's already when we are deported with my family. Mm. When I arrested in Leipzig on the 10th of November, I was bashed up so much that I thought that I'm going to die that day. But luck was with me. And when I came to my first concentration camp, Buchenwald, the commander was so shocked when he saw me bleeding from everywhere. My pyjama was full of blood and I had my face was swollen because I was hit with with their gun and with, with buttons. And so he asked me, who done that? And I say, your men. He was so upset because I speak perfect German. So he said to his driver, he gave me a white sheet so I don't bleed in his car. And he sent his driver with me about 40 kilometers from Buchenwald is a hospital at the city called Weimar, and he left me there two days unguarded. And I asked the nurse what would happen. I spoke French and English perfect, and I asked the nurse in that hospital what would happen if I escape. And she asked me, do you have parents? Of course I have parents, but your parents will hang. They arrest them and hang them because you escaped. And so how can I escape knowing that because of me, my parents would be killed? But if I would have now and then that my parents would be killed in any case, then I would have escaped already in 1938 to France or somewhere, and they wouldn't have found me. But I didn't. So I went back to camp and worked in this camp. It was a very bad camp. It was a camp not made for us. It was a camp for communists and socialists, and which were against. They were all arrested. 
They were in chains. They were not prepared for us. They put 11,000 Jewish men, only men, into a big tent. We had no toilets. We had no beds. We had no nothing. Some of the prisoners were very nice. And there were between us some people who were not able to walk or things like that. So they put two beds together and six people can sleep across two beds instead of two people in each bed. Six people slept in some barracks. But I had not that luck. I was, for all the time that I was in Buchenwald, I was in this tent. Eventually they gave us at least something to lay on, not on the floor. And uh, it was not a mattress, it was just a sheet or something. I rolled my, my trousers and my jacket up and made a cushion. I had nothing to cover myself. So it was very hard, very hard. And for this, I need you and all the people who have a sort of understanding because you are handicapped. And this makes me feel very sad for you. Yeah, see, when I listened to your book, you know, last year I, I listened to The Tattooist of Auschwitz. Years ago, I read Viktor Frankl's book, Man's Search for Meaning. And what always strikes me in the first few minutes of any of these stories is it doesn't matter that I'm highly educated. It doesn't matter that I'm very useful. The fact I'm blind means in, in Hitler's world, I would have been dead instantly. And there would have been no alternative to that outcome. You see, David, there was a conflict between the industrialists of Germany, which were Nazis as well. They didn't mind that we get killed, but they needed workers because their workers were in the war. Hitler took all the workers and made them fantastic soldiers, but who will produce the munition and the tanks and the planes and all this? So 11 big industries were built around Auschwitz, and they had hundreds of thousands of people, a couple of million of people, who could work to them for two slices of bread and a soup in the morning, a soup at lunchtime, and if there is enough soup left in the evening. But sometimes we go to sleep without any food. We have two slices of bread, 125 grams, Every second day we have 15 grams of margarine or 15 grams of honey. We have coffee, which is ersatz, means it's shikari, it's no coffee. Also in the coffee they put a chemical so that if we are young and we are, we, we, so to keep the sex life down of young men, they put bromide in. If I wouldn't know knew what is going into this coffee, I wouldn't have today a family if I would have drank that coffee. One day I smelled something in the coffee, I went to the kitchen and I asked this chef, what are you doing, what are you putting in the coffee? He told me bromide and I have this medical knowledge that bromide is, is used but you need only a half a drum. When I say to him, how much are you putting in? He started shouting at me, don't be silly. You think I measure it? I'm taking the tin and pour it in. No more coffee for me from that moment. <laughs> and, and no more for my best friend, Kurt. So what did I do? I made two little bottles out of metal. 
with the shape, like some people carry whiskey with them, and while I carried water. <laughs> and it was going under my belt and the form of my belly. And so Kurt had water and me. This water I collected every morning with him before the other people got up. And that was distilled water. It's the drinking water of the SS of our guards. But it overflows because it's too much. And I put a little tin. I made it a tin, the form of the drain. And so they thought it's going into the drain, that water. But it went into my bottles in my in my <laughs> That so is so clever. Four bottles. Two are in the drain and two are with us. Then I go and put the other one next morning and take the full one. <laughs> and so we had water. Good water. Yeah. You have to deplore your knowledge in every way. Mm. But yeah. two people are better than one. And that is wonderful with my friends. So I speak a lot about my friend. Yeah, when you talk about Kurt in the book, it's obvious when you start one of the chapters by saying the most important thing you will ever do is be loved. It was fantastic. I tell you, friendship you cannot buy. I tell all the children, if you have a friend, be a good friend. Don't try to find faults of your friend because we all have faults. A friend is like a second self. And you don't have to inquire. He is doing everything for you. He reads what you know. He tells you also what you want and things like that. It's wonderful. We were friends before in a peaceful camp in Belgium. And we were friends in Auschwitz. And I don't think I would have made it without Kurt. You know, it's a... When you get sick, you want to die, and uh, you don't want to go to that hospital because they might kill you. And so if you have no friends, you would go. Many times I told Fred, let's go to the wire. Take 30 seconds, and you're electrocuted. You feel nothing. He said, no. And when he was sick and came to me, let's go to the wire, I said, no. And that is what I saw. We say in French, l'union. Fellow force. Together we are strong. Alone we are nothing. And I tell you, many people gave up, and I can understand. Many people, and even with their friends. We had two friends. I think I speak about in the book. They were a bit older than us, and after six months in Auschwitz, they went to the wire and they killed themselves. Mm. And the Nazis then sent in 30 German shepherds to eat them up. They are hanging on the wire. Electric wire, 38,000 volts goes through the wires. So all the wires are electrified. Yeah, that is just because in the book you make the point they go to the wire, but you don't talk about the German shepherds. That's just unimaginable. And that's kind of good in the book that you probably don't because (laughs) that's just a whole other level of wow, the inhumanity that people are capable of. Yes. When you imagine that their final solution, they, they were able to destroy one third of our world population. Six million Jews died in concentration camps, not all in Auschwitz, one million in Auschwitz. There were many, many, many camps, many camps. And that was their final solution. And this was not made 
The guards were not people, street cleaners or packers. They were lawyers. They were doctors. They were scientists. Their final solution was to test on us, take out organs from us, and put them in people which were injured in the war. You have no idea what they have done. I hope that when we are all gone, that the world is not forgotten. And I can tell you one thing. If it can happen in Germany, it can happen anywhere. We have to educate the people that when you go to vote, whom you vote for is important to the future of your country. If you love your country, you be very careful. Never vote for a mad person or a dictator or a totalitarian. The crimes committed by by your leader is in your name. You are responsible. This is why I was convinced by this publisher to write my, my book. And I'm very happy because it has a great success. Today, Australia, tomorrow, the world. I have already from 17 countries the offer that they want to translate my book, even Germany. Wow. And I swear to you, there are hundreds and hundreds of Holocaust survivors who have written books. But my book is different. My book is not only about what happened. My book is to restore a little bit of respect which the young people here have lost. My book is about the family which the people have lost the contact. My book is like on the TEDx. I've spoken to 6,400 people on the 24th of May last year. And when I finished, I spoke only for 15 minutes. At the end, I said to all the people, most 65% were women, and the age group was between 25 and 55. And I said, if you want to please me, you go home now. It's 4.30, it was 4.30 in the afternoon. When you go home tonight, you go straight to the phone, and you ring your mom, it doesn't matter where she is, in Berlin, in Amsterdam or in London or in New York, you ring your mom and you say on my behalf, mom, I love you. My new friend Eddie has told me to do this. You wouldn't believe how many people have rang me and sent messages to the Jewish Museum and told me, told me, Eddie, you're wonderful because my daughter or my son have never said that to me since they are adults. But it doesn't matter if you're adult. And mom is a mom. It doesn't matter her age. A mom is the most important person in somebody's life. Sometimes it's not the mom, then it's the dead. But somebody must be the, the important. And we forget, not me, but we forget. And this is why in my family I have made it not a duty. It is what you give. My two children, I have two sons, Michael, Michel, he's born in Belgium, and André is born here in Brighton, Lessons in Sydney. And they're coming to see us when they're allowed, when we are not locked up, every day. One come in the morning and one come in the afternoon. And I say to them, 
Michael, why don't you come every second or Thursday? So he said to me, Dad, you don't want me to come? Of course I want you to come, but it's not necessary. He said, but I want to come. It's payback. And this is what I mean in my book sometimes. What you give, you get back. We give nothing, you get nothing back. I say to my two sons, you owe me nothing. I made you for my pleasure. But you owe me respect. And believe me, I sometimes cry only in thinking that they come specially to see us. There is no one else in this. We are here 300 people. No one gets visitors every day. You can be lucky if they come every two weeks or every four weeks. My children come every day. My grandchildren and daughter-in-laws come every two weeks. My great-grandchildren come once a month. And this is wonderful. So you see, that is what I want to create. Better families, better contacts, more kindness. It costs no more. You know that I won this, this year, it's been 2020, yes. In February, I was nominated between 1,200 people, the kindest, the most active, and the most helpful senior citizen of New South Wales. I have a beautiful certificate for what I am doing. There was no book yet, so they didn't know my life. I come to this home here for 10 years. They used to tell me, Mr. M- Mr. Monday, <laughs> because I used to come, put two, three tables together, and order coffee or tea, whatever anyone wanted, some cakes, and visit people I have never seen before. And this is what gives me the strength and the pleasure to help people who are not as fortunate as me. And, and my father used to say to me as a little boy, Eddie, there is more pleasure in giving than taking. I thought he was cuckoo, but now I see he was right. Life is about giving. Life is not about taking. And life, I want, I had an interview this morning with a representative of Qantas. They want to put a little article in their magazine. I'm 100 years old, and Qantas will be in November 100 years in existence. And I say to the people, I like to make make a change in the habit of the Australian people, to be a little bit more family-minded. The mateship is all right here. Not always perfect, because they drink too much sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> they want to be sick. They want to be sick. I tell them sometimes no good, so that they don't listen to me. So, but I can restore a little bit of what has been lost because when I was young, and we didn't have all these gadgets, phone, what I speak now on television, telephone, and all what we want we have. You know, we had a typewriter. But I like people. I, when I speak in a school, I answer only the, the letters who come handwritten. Because in Germany, you get points for writing beautiful 
Lisbon, not like you can't write. When my my doctor makes a, a prescription, I cannot read it because he can't write properly. <laughs> he can only write on the computer. I write by hand. I don't write on machine. I don't write on computer. <laughs> Just an observation, and I think you you started with it, and that is why your book is so amazing because you tell your story of the terrible bit of your life yeah. to explain that you made a decision laying in a hospital. I'm going to live and I'm going to live this kind of life. I'm going to be happy and I'm going to be helpful and I'm going to be kind and I'm going to be polite. And then you stuck to your decision and you showed how anyone can make the decision to do the things that are likely to make you happy and to make other people's lives better. Yes. You see, I speak all the time about the three H, that's health, happiness, and hope. If you give up hope, then you're finished. If you believe in miracles, David, I am a miracle. I shouldn't live, and I was condemned to die. But I didn't die. And this is up sometimes to yourself, because when the American soldiers found me on the old way, when I couldn't stand up anymore, I weighed 28 kilos, and at 28 kilos, you should be dead. And I don't know why I wasn't dead. And I came to this hospital, and for seven days, I was in a coma. And I came a doctor, Professor Hoffman. I think he was Jewish, but nobody knew. And I wouldn't tell anybody that he's Jewish. And I asked him every morning at eight and every night at six, what are my chances? And he never answered. So there you see, I believed that I was going to die. But after I found out, one nurse came in the middle of the night and looked if I'm breathing. When you're very, very weak, you don't breathe very much and she can't see it or hear it. So she put her, her ear on my blanket to listen if I'm breathing. So I grabbed her arm. Her name was Emma. And I said, Emma, I'm not letting your arm go before you tell me what did Professor Hoffman tell you about my state. And she started crying and she whispered in my ear, 65% you are dead and 35% you are alive. And I made a vow to whatever you believe in God or something else, whatever. If I come out of this hospital alive, I will never come back to Germany, ever. Now, I'm invited by my city every two years, first-class tickets to Leipzig, two weeks in the best hotel, that calls Hotel Astoria, and 2,000 euros spending money. And as I'm a kind person, I write back and say, sorry, the offer is very nice, but for personal reasons, I cannot come. I don't offend no one. I can't. I promise that I never put my foot. Now, I used to have three German friends. Every five years of my, I'm here now, 70 years. Every five years, I used to make a trip to Europe. Not to Germany, not to Poland, but I meet my three friends in Belgium, in Holland, and my, on my last trip in Switzerland. Now one died and two, they cannot travel anymore. And I don't travel anymore. But it was very nice. 
we had a good time together. We spoke our language, German. We enjoyed music. We went to cinema together, wherever we were, had good food and things like that. That's my, my landline is ringing. One second. One no second. problem. People dropping in books. Every day I, I sign many books. <laughs> <laughs> they buy my book, they drop it in, in the reception downstairs. Then I pick them up, sign, and I ring them, or they come back later or tomorrow to pick it up. That's lovely, and gives you a chance to yes, maintain I your beautiful penmanship. <laughs> it's really a beautiful feeling that so many people have bought my book and want to read it, and it's not for them only, it's for the future generation. It is to learn, to accept that humans have to behave like humans. It's not very hard. And if we can all together work on this, you, David, and everyone, to bring back the place where we were working, think is now fast. I, I made a little talk one day, and I said, the young people are running. I don't know where they're running to. You have to have time for everything. Otherwise, it has no value. Life is only in your hands. You have to divide certain things for everything we have time. But if you run, you don't know. And that's important, very important. Important to the society, important to a country, important to families, because education does not start in school. It starts at home. So I like to teach the parents of children and the children, the children to be more respectful and the parents to help not to use I hate or this one or this one or this. You can say, I don't like those people, but you must not say, I hate those people. And everyone use this hate. And hate is really jealousy. If you inquire, what do you know? Why do you hate Jews? Do you know any Jews? Do you know if they're different? I'm not different. I don't feel different. I'm not acting different. When I come to Australia, I want to be like Australian. My, my two boys went to Sydney Boys High School, not to a Jewish school. So there we see, I am assimilated. I used to be German. Now I'm Australian. And I don't want to do anything. I don't want you to become a Jew. <laughs> no, not at all. <laughs> There's nothing special about it. <laughs> in our history, we had a lot of trouble, but never trouble like this. In a, before, it was unsophisticated, uncivilized people in the countries we were living, in the Middle East. We, were, we have on Friday, will be 5,781, the New Year. We have Friday evening, Start the Jewish New Year, 5,781, not 2020. You see, we have very old history. And we had plenty of trouble in our history. People didn't like us, people killed. But this was not civilized. This was primitive people. Sometimes in countries where they didn't go to schools. But now, I don't understand. Really, I don't understand. 
And I think I you've am, made it clear that the message is very simple. Be polite, <laughs> be is, kind, and yeah. be helpful. This is why now you will understand why I decided so late in my life to write a book, because I'm a bit disappointed what's going on in the world. I thought when I leave the camp, that's once in a million, not in 100 years, not even. It's only 75 years that the war is finished. And you see this fighting between Shias and, and Sunnis, between other tribes in Bosnia, in Yugoslavia, all this rubbish. I mean, I mean, if you believe in God, God is for everyone. I believe in something which I see, I can tell you. You know, a, a religious Jew, if he does something wrong, can go to the synagogue, that is one week after our new year, and can ask God to forgive. I'm not a religious Jew, so I cannot go and ask forgiveness. I'm just not doing bad things. I don't hurt anybody. I don't answer you if I don't want to say the truth. I don't lie, because I will be punished for sure, because I believe in the water, the lightning, the sky, the earth can open up and take a whole city down. This is, I believe. So I'm in good health. I drive a car. I can walk very fast. I have no stroller, no stick, and I'm a hundred here and five months old because I am rewarded for what I'm doing in my life. I didn't become a nasty pig person. I became a good person. I want to help people. I want to help people who cannot help themselves. And for that, I'm rewarded with good health. I'm touch wood in pretty good health. I say to my children, if something happened to me, let me go. I only want to continue living if I can stay like I am now. You wouldn't believe it. Yet. And you will maybe ask me, what's the secret to become 100 and look like 70 or 80? <laughs> I tell you, never eat that your stomach is so full that you want to vomit. You must always leave a little space. Never fill it up to the top. Then you will have all the, the nutrients, the mineral, the protein, and the vitamins will be taken out of good food, healthy food, and will make you live good and you will look good. But if you fill up your stomach, it goes in and out the same way. You don't get no benefit from your food, nothing, zero. That is the secret, no other secret. I never fill up my stomach to the top. If I know that when it's enough, it's enough. You can give me the best thing, the sweetest thing, I will not eat it anymore. And that is, I have two sons, <laughs> and they are so different. One can eat and become fat, and the other eats like me when he is full, he's full. <laughs> the other say, oh, no, it's a shame to throw this away. No, <laughs> throw it away. Better than in your stomach. <laughs> uh, Eddie. I think yes. you, you sort of, you touched on it a little bit with the amount of I suppose hate and stuff there is in the world at the moment. For everything yes. for everything that you went through in the camps, how much have you been able to forgive and 
how has that helped you get to the point where you are now, where you are able to say that you're the happiest person alive? When I think of it, I don't understand. I will never. If I live 200 years, I will not understand how a country, how people can behave to anyone like they done to us. This is something which I will never understand. I saw that I lived in the most civilized, in the most cultural, and the most educated country in Europe, Germany, a country of Schiller and Goethe, of Beethoven and Mozart. Why? No other, no people shall ever do again what happened in Germany. You see, life in the camp is very hard. I tell you why. You must have a friend because you don't know to whom to speak because they come like this. They come to a, a fellow in the camp in a block. We are 400 people in a block. Mm. They come to one man, take him out, give him something good to eat, like they have the gods, and they tell him, look, we will save all your family, and they know all the names, but you have to tell us who try to sabotage something, who wants to run away, or want to do anything. Whatever you can tell us, we will appreciate and we will look after you. And so you have plenty spice. You wouldn't believe it, how weak people are. The people who damage you, to bash you, and then they try to get you as a spy. And mm. there were plenty spies. And so you can't speak to no one. That makes you very, very unhappy. So I had a, no problem. I met my friend after work for half an hour, or I went to his block, or he came to his block. But normally, we, we walk back from work one and a half hour. If there is some food, we take some food, and then I get cleaned up and go to sleep. One hour rest is two days survival. In the, I told you, in the block is 400, 399 running around for four hours looking for food, they never find. Looking for friends or family, they might find, but they're wasting irreplaceable energy. Mm. I tell them, lie down. No, they won't listen. So this is, was my program. When I have food for my friend, because I always boiled in my, in my work some potatoes for the doctors, what I say in my book, and so I used to take some, some potatoes to my friend. But otherwise, I lie down on my bank and wait till everybody else comes and at quarter past nine, the light goes out. So I didn't have many people. I would treat people, but I tried not to have conversation with them because they answer questions. Uh, if I plan something, many people plan escape. Many other people want to hurt the Germans. Many people do things which they shouldn't do, and the court, you see, they, they take tools from the work to there, and the dogs standing on the, with the guards on the entrance, and they found that you have metal in your pocket, and they bash you to death in the straight away. And you had no intention to do, maybe you wanted to do something to your shoes, because we have wooden shoes, wooden shoes, and sometimes the wood is fading and bringing up a splinter or something, 
you want to take it out, so you bring a screwdriver or something. They find it in your pocket and you're gone. You're, you're hanging the next day. So I developed that I could live with not having contact a part of my friend or the people I had to work with or the people who give me orders. It was a very lonely time for me in Auschwitz. I didn't trust no one. You must not trust no one. Even the people who are very nice to you can be spies for the Germans. You know, I didn't even tell them where's my toothpaste or that I had taken out a brick in the shower and I hide my, my soap because I make little rings for German soldiers. I make bracelets and chains out of metal scraps which stay in the machines where I work. And I exchanged this. I had socks and I had a shirt, a warm shirt under my uniform, but they didn't know. That's all from my work, what I have done in secret. <laughs> I kept very well. I, I had enough with having court. I could go to court anytime. It was 15 minutes for me. So far, court was away because uh, it's such a big, big place. 15 to 20 minutes to go to see my friend in his block because he was there. But my friend was always in the camp. He never walked to work like me, one and a half hour in the morning and one and a half hour. So I developed to be a loner, you know. And, you know, even when I came back to Belgium, I met my wife. I didn't need a wife. I needed a mom. And my wife had a mom and no dad. And, <laughs> and my mother, my mother-in-law has accepted me. You have no idea. She mm-hmm. gave me everything. I was here 12 months and I worked for Drug House of Australia. And I went to a government office and said, I want to bring my mother-in-law. So where do you live? I said, I just built on a little room for her in a kitchenette. You can come and inspect. I pay also her fare, and I want my mom, my mother-in-law to come. And I got a permit within 12 months. They were very good to me. I went to head office of the immigration office here, and I was very successful. And she lived with us for 25 years. Then I found a husband. <laughs> you won't believe it. He was Jewish, but he was <laughs> So, more questions? You had a question, didn't <laughs> yeah, you, Jess? Yeah, sure. So, I've got two questions for you, Eddie, actually. So, the first one, I think, yes, is please. you talk yes. so much about Kurt in the beginning yes. of the book, but then what happened to Kurt later? He moved to Israel. Did know. you see him yeah. again? Yes. I put him, I don't know if I say it right thing. We went on a march together. It's called the Dead March. We marched out 68,000 from my camp marched for three days and three nights, 90 kilometers, day and night without food, without water. And we arrived on the Polish border with Germany. We were in a military building. We were on the second floor. And Kurt says to me in the middle of the night, Eddie, I cannot go any further. So I went down in the shower and I saw a manhole. I found a ladder. I got up the ladder and I opened the manhole and two fellows were already hiding in there. It was between the roof and the ceiling and they made, 
to run back to court. I hugged him, I kissed him. I thought I never see him again. I pushed him in against the will of these other two, and I left him there. And he was liberated. I didn't know then six months later, when I came back to Belgium, he was liberated two days after, t- taken by the Russians to Odessa, stayed there in a, in a, in a, like a retirement place for a while till he got his strength back. And then he was on the first boat back from Russia, from Odessa to Antwerp, which is in Belgium. So he came to Belgium six months before me. He knew my wife already. She worked for the people who came back from the war in a canteen. And so when we met, you will never understand how happy we were. We were going around to hold hold our little fingers and dancing in the street. And we had two, both had jobs and we had plenty of money and we went sometimes standing in front of a cafe or a bakery and say, is it possible? We were in Auschwitz and now we can go in the shop and buy all the cakes which are there. And we were laughing. People were thinking we are crazy, but we were not crazy. And we had a good time. Then Kurt married in February 1946 and I married in April. I was his best man on his, and he was the best man on mine. One day, I had a, I had an apartment in Belgium, a lift with Kurt, and Kurt got married. But I, we had the two of us, we saw in the paper that three Jewish girls came back from the war, from Birkenau, and didn't find any people. So they decided to commit suicide. In Belgium, there are many bridges. And one bridge called Chaussée de Ninov, when a ship comes, comes underneath, you're very close to the ship from the bridge. The bridge is on a small bridge, not like the harbor bridge in Sydney. And if you jump on a ship, they are covered with planks. You're dead. But they fell in the water, those three girls. And they took them to a hospital, a madhouse. And I read in the paper that Three girls were picked up by the police. They fell in the water. They wanted to commit suicide. And if you are committed suicide in Belgium, you are declared mad. And they put you in a really bad madhouse. So I rang up the madhouse, and I wanted to see the people. I bought flowers and everything. It was such a bad place. And when if you are not mad, within three months you are there, you are mad. I went to the police and I said, I have three bedrooms, two bathrooms. I live with court in one room. We sleep in the same bed. I like to take those girls out and look after them. And I got permission. Commissioner of police came, inspected my apartment, and I got them. And when they came to my door, I said like this, when I open this door, you become my sisters. Hocus pocus, you are my sisters. No monkey business with sisters. And we never touched those girls. They were beautiful. They were provocative. They sometimes ran, ran down, ran around in the flat naked, topless or naked. But they all got married. One lives now in Paris, one in London, 
and running parcels in Belgium. And when I go, I told you every five years, I go to Europe, I visit my, my sisters. <laughs> Very nice. You see, that's what I am and that's what I do. And that is what I convey to you in my book. Okay. I think that's everything. Thank you so much, Thank Eddie, you very for your much. time. Thank you, David. I wish you all all the best. Keep in touch. Thank you. And be healthy and happy. I told you. The three H. Health, happiness, and hope. Never lose hope. Ah, we can maintain all three of those. Thank you, Eddie. Okay. Thank you so much, Eddie. Such a pleasure. Thanks for your time. You're welcome. You're welcome. Bye. 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 Listeners, I hope you found our interview with Eddie as significant as we found it to be. Thank you very much for Luke and Jess being a part of today's recording. Listeners, we have a second half to this episode. We're very lucky that we're going to get to speak to Aviva Wolf from the Sydney Jewish Museum. So for when we're in a world where people like Eddie can't tell his own story anymore... The Sydney Jewish Museum can keep making sure that people understand these important things and understand our history and understand the consequences of hate. So I hope you enjoy the second half of our episode. Hello listeners, welcome to the second part of our extended episode. As you would have all just heard, we had an amazing conversation with Eddie Jaku. And because Eddie talks so much and so fondly about the Sydney Jewish Museum, I thought it would be really important to let you all hear a little bit about the museum from someone involved with it. Because there's going to come a day where people can't directly listen to Eddie or talk to him like we've had the privilege to do. And if people discover this episode in 10 years time and they're really interested in understanding the Holocaust and how survivors survived and how they built their lives after, I hope that anyone listening to this in 2030 can just listen to this next part with Aviva Wolf from the Sydney Jewish Museum and then jump on their website and keep learning and keep engaging and keep making sure we don't lose the history we have. So with me today, as ever, in our multi-located studio is Tim Whiffen. Good morning, Tim. Thank you for having me, David. You sound so much better this week. It's so good to hear you without a cold. (laughs) And back in Adelaide is Jessica Freund. Hello, Jess. Hi, everyone. And from Sydney, thank you very much for your time. Aviva Wolf from the Sydney Jewish Museum. Thank you so much for inviting me along, David. I appreciate it. Aviva, can we start with something very simple because it's the first thing people will see or find, and that is that the Sydney Jewish Museum is in a very important old be- a very important old building, the yeah, Maccabean Hall, and that that is a memorial for Jewish soldiers 
from World War One. So the heritage in this building is absolutely amazing. It certainly is. It's a heritage building externally, which has been wonderful for us because we've been able to renovate the internal. Externally, it's an older looking building and internally very modern. What we have done is we've kept the original ceiling of the Maccabean Hall. So when one looks up from the bottom, you see the original ceiling. It was a hall that was also used as a venue for weddings, dances, bar mitzvahs, and many of our survivors came along and participated in those. And in fact, one of our existing survivor guides met his wife and married in the current hall. And we also have a military exhibition on the, as a one wing of the museum, which carries on the theme and shows the Jewish contribution of the military over the many wars. That's remarkable because I don't think most Australians would think we would have any kind of memorial like that. You know, people probably aren't aware. And the fact that it's so deeply been a part of the Jewish community for so long that it's been you know, a community centre, what, literally since it was built in the 1920s? Exactly right. So when you created a museum in the 1990s, how do a group go about creating a museum? Like, obviously, a whole pile of people thought it was important and then the money was found. But where do you start and what do you do to build a museum to remember an entire people and what, over 5,000 years of recorded history? It's kind of amazing. Yes, it's mainly a Holocaust history museum. We do show Jewish festivals. We also show how the first Jewish settler arrived in Australia. She stole a piece of lace in London and was sent abroad as her conviction. She became the first Jewish settler. She was actually pregnant at the time. And she then actually landed up marrying one of the governors and became quite an important lady in the community. So we wow. show that history. Also, the survivors wanted to make sure that the history of the Holocaust was never forgotten. They were very nervous that over time, you know, stories would dissipate, people would forget. So John Saunders, who was actually a partner of Frank Lowy at the time, he was also a Holocaust survivor, as was Frank Lowy of the Westfields Emporium. And he put up all the money to actually start the museum. And they had all the survivors gathered. They brought what few artifacts they had, because most of them obviously landed up coming to Australia with very few possessions from their former life. But all of them had something or something they'd been in the camps with. So each of them donated their artifacts, which are on display in the museum. We also have a very, very large archive of letters, correspondence, and many items that we cannot display because we have so many. But the main items that were donated initially by the Holocaust survivors are still on display. And that's how the museum began in 1992. It was the survivors who decided they wanted to keep the memory alive. And then it's just a case after that of going, well, we've got extra space. What else can we show? So on the website at the moment, you know, there's a, a thing about a, an exhibition about the Jewish community with what within the Arab world up to the 15th century, yeah? So what we do is we have a permanent Holocaust exhibition and then we have two temporary exhibition spaces and we change those on an annual basis. Um, many Jews were expelled from Arab lands. So many Jews were living in Egypt, Iran, Iraq, and other various areas, er, er, eras, sorry, not areas, eras. 
they were actually expelled and had to flee those Arab lands. So they themselves became refugees and they felt that we'd never honored their history. So we've got a beautiful exhibition on at the moment called The Jews from Islamic Lands, which explores that history and their artifacts. But that is a temporary exhibition. It will be on until April 2021. Uh, last year we had uh, the history of Jewish music through the ages, through the world, and Jewish composers, singers, artists. So that was also a very exciting exhibition. So we try and keep things fresh constantly. Yeah, it's really interesting you talk about the music because I used to be a violinist. And I remember once finding an amazing album and it was all violin music written by composers who had been killed in the Holocaust. Right. It was all composers whose life had been cut short. Yes. And it, it was one of the most remarkable 70 minutes of music going, all these people were on the way to doing even more amazing things. And just, you know, everything was sort of composed between basically 1935 and about 1943. Exactly and it's just like, right. you know, just gone. In terms of, the fact that you know the museum is a repository for Holocaust survivors' testimonies. Is it a case where lots of survivors might do a bit of a testimony uh, like in the 1990s and then later feel more comfortable and do another one and add more detail and then as they're getting closer to the end of their life, add even more? Is it sort of an ongoing process of capturing what people feel comfortable talking about when they feel comfortable? Well, interesting you ask that. Steven Spielberg actually was the one at one stage who decided to collect and record as many Holocaust survivor stories as he could worldwide. And it's called the Spielberg Testimonies. And it's held by the Shoah Foundation in Los Angeles. We have the copyrights to that. And many of our survivors gave their stories. So they're very long, very detailed. And the survivors were much younger. So their memories were very, very clear. We've got a huge amount and, and families all over the world can access their particular family member. They're not available broadly to the public. People have to actually come into the museum to hear the recorded testimony or see the recorded testimony. And what we're just doing at the moment with the Shaw Foundation in LA is it's not a hologram as such, but it's the idea of a hologram. So we're taking six of our survivors they're going to be doing intense filming. And what you will be able to do, or students and, and the public will be able to do in the future, is ask a question. So they'll stand in front of a hologram, which looks like the person there, and they'll say, tell us, did you have any siblings? And it's voice recognition, and the person will answer the question. It's the most amazing technology. And to so, really keep it alive for people exactly. that they're interacting with a person. Because we bring through about 30,000 students each year, besides the year of COVID, but in a normal educational year, we have about 30,000 school students coming through the museum. And the most memorable part of their visit is meeting a Holocaust survivor and hearing the story firsthand. That's something that remains with them forever. Eddie has a suitcase full of letters, cards. He just inspires young adults he somehow has a connection with them they all remember eddie and many of the other survivors and that's something that they take home with them that story of a direct story from a holocaust survivor so for them to be able to ask these questions and what we're doing at the moment is we're asking school students to tell us what questions they would like to ask and those are the questions that we're going to be formatting in a way that 
the hologram will be able to respond. So there'll be that repository will exactly, suit what the, say, be ongoing to seventeen year olds ask. And those questions aren't going to change because this history is always going to be shocking and remarkable for them. Exactly. To know right. that this is how the world once was. And then earlier this year we took about twenty eight of our survivors and we re recorded in full length and with obviously much better technology today, we re recorded their their testimony. It's absolutely remarkable that you know there's still twenty eight survivors able to re record. We've actually got forty two survivors who wow. still come into the museum every single week. Some of them were child survivors, so they're a little bit younger. They're sort of 75 into their 80s. And then obviously the older survivors, many of them are well into their 90s. And they're actually looking today at why survivors have such longevity. And they think it may have to do with years of starvation, that your body almost goes into a hibernation. A lot of them are in the most incredible physical health and are really well into their later 90s and they just their memories are remarkable they're independent they live independently so they they're truly remarkable people yeah eddie made the point to us yesterday you know that he still walks without a cane still walks fast you know the big lesson he learned is eat until you're never quite full exactly he told me the other day that he goes well when he could get out he he went for a walk in our centennial parkland every day and he said, you know, it's really annoying because these people just want to walk and chat and they're really slow. When I walk, I want to walk. <laughs> so yeah, he's, he's It's a just remarkable because, you know, when he made the point that, and in the book and talking about it yesterday, of you know, weighing 28 kilos at the point where the Americans found him on the edge of the road, to go from that and to be able to have good health is remarkable. It and is it remarkable. just seems the psychological thing too of, having decided I'm going to be happy and I'm going to be kind and I'm going to be helpful and I'm going to be polite. And that's that. That's just how life's going to be. And he's really lived up thing. to that. And he always says to the students, if you're lucky enough to have a mother, which I did not, I lost my mother and I've never said goodbye to her and I've never been able to kiss her since you go home today and you give your mother a kiss and tell her you love and appreciate her. And a mum once called the museum and said, could I speak to Eddie Jaco? And she said, were you the man who spoke to my son today? And he was waiting to be berated. And she said, do you know that's the first time my 16-year-old has kissed me in the last five years? He came home today and said, Eddie Jaco said, I must kiss my mum. Just so, a wonderful yes. impact on the world. I think what's really clever about the way that Eddie portrays his message is that he talks about being kind and being good to the people around you even though it is absolutely anti-fascist, it's almost like he takes this avenue of making it much more personal. And I think there's something very warming about that. Yes, you're right. Since Eddie wrote his book, we get letters literally every day. I've told him I've become his personal secretary. And everyone ends with your friend. I'm your new friend. Yeah. So he gets that sort of message across of being a friend of the person reading the book. Yeah, and it's so, so clever. I think that's why it's gotten to the hearts of so many people. Yeah, He's just made it so very personal. Yeah, Yeah, and I think it's interesting because he could have taken that super anti-fascist angle and he would have been so entitled to do that and that would have also been really powerful. But I think by making it this hyper-personal message, this very emotive message of just be kind to your neighbour, it kind of has that consequence anyway, I would like to think. 
you yeah, quite And the power of connection to make people see each other as people. Like I don't if you know don't know the person beside you, then you can ignore them. Exactly. But if you, if you know that person and you've been kind to them for a year, how could you then turn around and be awful without it pricking at your conscience? And yeah. it's amazing how many young people sort of connect with Eddie and want to get his advice on life and boyfriends. And, you know, they even talk to him about those kind of matters. They, they often seek Eddie's hundred year old advice on young relationships. He was telling us yesterday about kind of finding a husband for his mother-in-law and that it started well, but didn't end so good. And we, we're trying to decide, should we laugh a lot at this and laugh along? Or... I don't know if any of you have watched Eddie gave a TED talk last yes. year. Went, mm. And you know, to see 6,000 people get to their feet to applaud Eddie, I still yeah. cry when I remember that image of seeing that. It was absolutely amazing. And he touched every single person in that audience simultaneously. Yeah. Mm. And that's why it's so important to make sure that over time people can transition from that message to go, Hey, the museum's here. You can come and interact <clears throat> with so much stuff. That means you can keep learning and the message isn't going to disappear. You know, the message will only get stronger as more people know about it. Well, yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's I, 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 after talking with Eddie had a phone call with my mother last night in which I told her that I loved her. Not, <laughs> not that that's not a common occurrence, uh, which it is, but you know, she, she was very happy that uh, I'm, I'm 24. She's, she was you know, very happy that I, in my lifetime managed to be able to talk to someone who survived the Holocaust, which you know, might have been something that was maybe more achievable, I guess, in her lifetime than, you know, probably what the prospects were when I was born. So what struck me about her saying that was that there was this kind of internalized worry that as time goes on, more and more young people are going to have less access to, I, I guess, the kind of personal interactions with, you know, this really significant historical, or these re really significant historical events. And the impression I'm getting from the museum is that you're getting really well prepared to engage students into the future. I'm, I'm wondering though, is there a sense in, you know, kind of the halls behind you and the halls of this kind of uh, institution of worrying? Is there a sense of worry about when, you know, unfortunately when all of our survivors pass on? Very much so. It's been a point of discussion here for many years because they, certainly have been the focal point and the sort of heart and soul of the museum since its inception. Mm. You know, and, and it's it's certainly been a reason why people come here because as you say, to actually have that opportunity of meeting or talking to a Holocaust survivor and and we call it future proofing. So we've mm. really worked on future proofing the museum so that it still in time remains a relevant institution. And we've also ensured that people have become to understand that it's not a museum for Jewish people. Mm. It's certainly, although it's called the Sydney Jewish Museum, which might give the impression that it's a museum created for Jewish people, it's anything but that. Mm. It's really a, a museum for the broader community to learn about history. And what we've also done is we followed on and we've created a human rights center. So we felt that the Holocaust led on to human rights today and we Explore four major human rights in Australia currently, being refugees, the LGBT community, the Aboriginal community, and people with disabilities. And we've got four separate tables, and students can sit all around those, and we focus on human rights going forward. So I think that was a very 
you know, sort of giant leap into the future as well. Yeah, it sounds like such a clever thing to do. Cause yeah, very something, clever. Mm. Yeah, Eddie and I were talking about yesterday, just quickly, that, you know, last year when I read The Tattooist of Auschwitz and years ago reading Viktor Frankl's book, Man's Search for Meaning, and then reading Eddie's book, the first thing that always leaps in my head is that, you know, in 1942 Europe, being blind, I would have been dead real fast, <laughs> you know, just for being disabled. Exactly. In, in Nazi Europe, that would have been the end of me. So this is a broader issue and it's fantastic that that's the way forward is to see that human rights is at the center of all of this and the history can inform that human rights don't work well unless they work well for all of us. Exactly right. And, and there's, there's been an upsurge of anti-Semitism worldwide in the last five years. There's definitely been an upsurge of that. So, you know, we've really got to counter that ongoing yes. as well. So what sort of role do you think that the museum can play in that? Is it exposure, do you think, or? You can show people how easily these kind of sentiments can escalate into something shocking. Yeah. You know, that, that minor things, and that's really how it started in Germany with the press sort of perpetuating that, you know, Jews were people who are after your money or taking your position, and Hitler played on that and the press played on that, and, you know, you see what, what happened with that, how it just escalates. So, and, and sort of bullying at school as well has become a, a major issue. And, you know, we really try and show the kids, you know, what bullying can do and how it can break people down and, and what can result from these kind of actions. So, you know, those kind of lessons are lessons forever. Yeah. I've had sort of Rwandan students whose parents went through, you know, the Rwandan genocide and I've had, Cambodian students whose parents went through the killing fields at the Khmer Rouge. So the terrible thing is multiple cultures keep seeing the consequences of hate and the general populace being too weak or too disorganized to say no. So the message always has to be out there in as inclusive and comprehensive a way as possible, because it's not just one community, it's multiple communities who are potentially in danger. And historically, yes. the Jewish community has the most history of being able to go, hey, see what happened? Look what happened. We're the proof that you should wake up and not ever be that weak and manipulable again. Exactly. And we do engage with all those communities. In fact, the Rwandan community had their last commemoration at the museum. So oh, awesome. we really try and engage with other communities that have suffered genocide. We find that's really, really important. Wow. And we also try and educate about people being bystanders because you know a lot of the, the communities in Europe at the time were bystanders you know many people did realize what was happening and were too scared to sort of move forward or you know there were a lot of people who did save Jews who've been recognized as saving Jews but we try and teach people that you don't be a bystander if you see something that you think is wrong step in be brave enough to take action yeah, that's a really clever message to send forward, I think. That's very, very clever of you, being able to stand up for others, especially if you perceive them to be vulnerable for whatever reason, and whether that's because of awful propaganda like what was being spread at the time or whether that's because of other things like you mentioned about you know, maybe them being having a disability. Yeah, it's really, really clever. Well, the thing that it gets compared to at the moment, and I'm not sure how relevant this is to the conversation, but the re-education camps for the Uyghurs in China is the one, the thing that I keep kind of yeah. bringing this back to. It's that I feel like there's a bit of silence there and a bit of bystanding there that 
we could learn from the past to, to deal with, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Again, being bystanders is a dangerous thing. You know, this is why with the other podcast we're involved in, we did one with a Uyghur activist mm. about the re-education camps because even if it just adds one audience that's aware, that's one more audience that knows exactly. a bit more than they knew the day before. Message speaks. Yeah. Aviva, is there anything you wish we would have asked you? No, I just wish we could have had this conversation in person and I just hope that in the future, in a post-COVID world, you will be able to come and visit. I'd love to show you all around and, you know, make the museum a reality for all of you. And I welcome every single person who may be listening to this currently or in the future to make sure that they step by our museum because I think most people entering the doors leave, exiting the doors with a different perception of life generally. It sounds like a really special place. And thank you so much for the, for the very warm invite. It's my absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thank you, Aviva. Thank you, Tim and Jess. And thank you, listeners. Hello, audience. Thank you for listening to Blind Insights. If you're enjoying the show, please remember to subscribe and share your favorite episodes or leave us a review if you really love us. We'd love to hear from you. Get in contact with us on Facebook or Twitter at Blind Insights or send us a recorded question to the email in the description to feature on an episode. Also, don't forget that we have merchandise. Thank you to the OzCast Network. Peace out.